Sales Tuners, Episode 63, Mark S.A. Smith, Founder of the Bija Company. Product training is about what you talk about. Sales training is about how you talk about it. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Mark Twain, who said a man's character may be learned from the adjectives which he habitually uses in conversation. Joining me today is Mark S.A. Smith, a veteran of the business world, having run his own company for nearly three decades. Mark's work at the Bija Company focuses on companies both large and small, implementing sales processes and customer acquisition strategies. He spent years in radio and today hosts the Selling Disruption Show, a podcast I highly recommend checking out. Mark writes over a quarter million words per year, and one of the things I've admired most about him is how he's constantly sharing those ideas freely. He's also told me he loves hanging out with people smarter than he is, which makes me wonder why he agreed to be on this show. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. You've heard me talk about them for a couple of months now, but you have to check out Costello. It's a deal management platform that aligns frontline sales reps, managers, and VPs so they can work together to consistently close more deals. They help reps get the right deal information from prospects, give reps and managers visibility into the quality of every deal, and help sales leaders understand what's working and what's not. Check it out at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. Make sure you stick around until the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 63. But now, let's get to the conversation where Mark describes his systems thinking methodology and how he built it during his days as an electrical engineer. I'm a systems thinker. All of the work I've done in the world of sales has been based on why didn't this work? And if you think about it, most engineering is exactly that thing. We're trying to figure out how to make something work better, faster, more effectively, more efficiently, make more money around it. And I've applied that systems thinking to the world of sales. And so when something appears to be broken, the first thing I want to do is take it apart, figure out why it's broken and how to fix it so we can make it work better. And I've done that to the world of marketing and sales, fundamentally customer acquisition. You know, in this show, Mark, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to some of those successes that you've been able to break apart and fix. Uh, But let's talk about your sales process today. What are you doing and and why does a typical customer actually buy from you? My tribe has been primarily the world of of, of, of IT. So computer, software, hardware, simply because it came out of my experience as an engineer. And so in the world of IT, we're constantly introducing new disruptive products to the marketplace. When I talk about a disruptive product, it's it's something that people don't know they need, but once they experience it, they refuse to go back to the old way of doing business. And probably the best example of that is the smartphone. Now, 11 years ago, if I'd said to you, Jim, I've got this telephone, no dial, no (laughs) buttons, you'd say, you're a moron, you're an idiot. And now nobody has a telephone with buttons or dials on it. And it's a disruptive product. And now I don't know why we call it the phone. It's the least used function. I use the camera more than I use the phone. That's absolutely right. And so that's the kind of thing I've been helping my clients bring to the marketplace. And the deal here is when you sell a disruptive product, you can't talk about the product. And the reason why is because people don't know it. They don't know what to Google. 
They don't know what to ask. They don't know how to evaluate it because it's something outside of their experience. And along the way, what I've learned is selling disruptive products applies to anything. Wow, I, I can do this to products that are commodities and, and make more money. That's really what has driven my view in writing the books that I've written, the articles that I've written, so I can share these ideas with others. There's no reason to suffer as a salesperson. You should be extremely well compensated and make a lot of money because we change the world. As sales professionals, we are the source of all revenue for all companies. We provide the income to everybody that has a job. We are the point of the spear when it comes to the economy. We have a, a sacred calling. And we need to treat it as if it is. I agree with pretty much everything you just said there, Mark. And I think a lot of those things actually led me uh, to have a pretty big ego in a previous life uh, to the point where I let people know that I was responsible for their income. And I'm thankful that I've let myself be humbled. But I still agree with everything that you said. Sales is the greatest profession in the world when done correctly. But you know, one of the things that has to happen is that is you have to be in the right uh, mindset to be able to accomplish those things. So uh, let's, we're going to, we're going to bounce around here a little bit, but I know Mark, uh, you have not been the person that you are today forever. So take me way back. How did you actually get into sales? I don't think anybody starts off life saying, I'm going to be a sales guy, just like daddy or mommy, right? You know, you, you walk into a kindergarten and you ask kids where they want to be for a living. I don't think a salesperson ever shows up. And for a lot of people, it's actually the last career choice of their life. Like a lot of salespeople, I started off expecting to design things, and analyze things, and build things out, out of electronic components. That was what I was trained to do. That was my love. That was my passion. And what happened is the HP, who hired me out of college, that, back, that was back in the days when HP hired sales. Their salespeople were engineers because it was peer-to-peer -peer selling. And they offered me a credit card and travel. I said, I think I can get used to this. <laughs> And I started teaching people how to buy what I sold. And what I learned along the way is that the most dangerous thing to my competitor was a customer who's educated. So I started to view sales from the, the angle of, if I can teach my prospects what I know about my products, they're going to buy from me, if at all possible. And the reality of selling is adult education. Adult education is fundamentally change management. So if you think about it, sales is change management. Our job is to change how our prospects view the planet, to show them how we can get them what they want, hopefully from us. And to do anything else in sales is narcissistic and psychopathic. I don't know that I had ever thought about it in that regard. So, and you know, I know you've probably read the stat too, and I forget, you know, what the actual number is because I think it changes all the time, but something like 68 or 71% of all uh, buying decisions have already been made before a prospect actually reaches out to a salesperson. But, but that goes completely against this idea of change management that you talked about. Generally speaking, I, I, people don't know what they're searching for. They are, they're looking for a new reality. And if they knew mm -hmm. what to uh, look for or what to type into Google, they would get the answer. But can, right. can you explore that a little bit more from that idea of change management? How do we do that? You said at HP, you would teach your buyers how to buy, and that was extremely dangerous to your competitors. But how did you do that? What was that process like? Well, what I focused on was solving the customer's problem which seems to be a blinding flash of the obvious, but let's back up to the traditional way that I had been so, uh, taught how to sell, mostly accidental, mostly by watching what other people did, 
was the classic features, advantages, and benefits. Let's talk about the product features and how they create advantages for customers and their benefits, and that creates an ROI, and you're an absolute moron if you don't buy this. And that technology goes back 130 years to 1887. John Patterson, National Cash Register, commissioned the book called Sales Arguments, 16 pages that was so effective that it became the holy grail of sales. But of course, back then we were selling cash registers, the original IT <laughs> wow. to, shop, to shop owners who were keeping their cash in a cigar box. And literally, the we you know, let me ring that in is a holdover from 130 years ago when the cash register had a bell on it. So the owner could look over and watch the change being counted out. I had no <laughs> idea. Wow. Now, Patterson was a, was, was a monster. If you pissed him off, he would cart your desk out to the lawn and set it on fire. He was the guy that invented the phrase, you're fired. <laughs> so it wasn't Donald Trump on The Apprentice. No, he's just recycling stuff that's been around for a, a way longer than Donald's been arrived. But in the 1930s, it was estimated that one-sixth of the American leadership of business had been through the NCR training of, of, uh, of sales. So it became truly the holy grail of sales. And it was all about arguing your way into convincing somebody to buy what you're selling. Now, fast forward, people are way more sophisticated. And as you pointed out, you know, in the, in the 70s, percent of the work has been done before somebody shows up thanks to Google. Now, that doesn't mean it's the right answer. It just means it's their answer so far. And then what we get to do is change, manage the final 30% as long as we can genuinely deliver the outcome that they're looking for. But in a world of disruptive sales, what we're attempting to do is introduce them into something they hadn't yet considered that will do a better job for whatever reason better means. It'll create more value. It may be less expensive. It may last longer. It may have more prestige. There's fundamentally 30 value propositions that we can choose from. And that's been published in the Harvard Business Journal about six, uh, in uh, last year. And oh, by the way, Jim, at the bottom of the pyramid, the very worst value prop you can come up with, save money. <laughs> and here's why. The, the save money is, you know, how much they're spending right now down to zero. That's the limit of the value of saving money. And yet people use it all the time. Stop talking about saving money. It's the worst value prop you've got. Stop it. The second worst, saving time. And, and the reason why is there's only so much time that can be saved. It's a limited value proposition. And then the other question is, we're saving money and saving time at, at what cost? That's right. And so use something more powerful. Peter Drucker said, that we can make more money by exploiting opportunities than by solving problems. That's right. Well, look, it's, it's a psychological fact that people are more inclined to move away from pain than they are toward gain. And so even when we look at- That's a lie. It was, oh, okay. Let's go with that. Tell me All why. Right, Jim, stop that one. I want you to erase that one from your brain forever. That is a piece of BS that is keeping salespeople from making millions of dollars. Well, I'm, I'm taking notes now. I'm listening. Go ahead, Mark. All right. All right. Where do you want to sell in a company? If you're selling business to business, where do you want to be selling? Well, I mean, obviously as high as possible where the revenue as is created. As high as possible. They don't generate the revenue. They do generate the budget. Okay. At the top of the company, are they pain driven or are they vision driven? They are vision. Oh, I, I'm with you. They're vision driven, of course. Yes. They're vision driven. 
And because of that, they are inventing a future that does not yet exist, using methodologies that have not yet been invented, and they will partner with companies that will help them get to their vision. The farther down the food chain you go, the more pain drives them. The higher up the food chain you go, the less pain drives them, the more uh, that vision drives them. So let's take a look at Maslow's hierarchy to give you another view of this. So Maslow's hierarchy drives every deal, without a doubt. And just a quick review, Maslow's has five levels of hierarchy. The bottom is, is fundamental physical needs, food, shelter, water, uh, air. Moving up the chain, we have security. So the fact that we can actually sleep at night without having to be worried be shot at, about being shot at. Next level up is our tribe, love for each other. Next level up is love for ourselves, self-esteem. At the top of the, tri- of, of the, of the hierarchy is self-actualization. In other words, living on purpose. The bottom two levels, physical needs and security, are all pain-driven. The three above are all vision-driven. If you are selling products that meet the two levels at, of Maslow's hierarchy at the bottom, pain-based selling is effective. If you do anything in the upper three levels, it is ineffective. In fact, it is counterproductive. Hmm. I want to argue with you. Please do. But... Let's call it a debate. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and no, and, and I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to, to have intelligent conversations with people. So I don't disagree with the premise at all, right? But what I would say is people definitely always want to have a vision of where they're going. But if you sell just to the vision of where they're going, they can't grasp that. Right. And so, sure they can because it's their vision. Well, but but it's but it's not tangible. Right. And so it, but bear with me again. I'm not talking about just doing pain based selling. I do think that's an old technique that has gotten very stale and people don't want you to sit and just develop pain. Right. But I think that there is a personal uh, pain. Again, look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first two are foundational levels. If you don't have those first two levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you can't even consider self-actualization what's at the top. And so when we're talking about the idea of, you know, stop talking about saving money, stop talking about uh, saving time because those are both limited and scarce, right? Or they're limited, but that's still a, a um, positive thing. You're looking out toward a gain. The first thing that I have to do is understand what would be the case. So for instance, if you were talking to me about, uh, I need to save more money, of course I need to save more money. I wish I could save more money. But when you talk to me about the idea that I'm losing thousands of dollars a month because I'm not saving money about what it's going to be with compound interest and all that kind of stuff, now you have my attention. So I want the millions of dollars in the bank and I want that compound interest. But what I what you're getting me on is the pain that I have of what I'm actually losing as opposed to what I might be able to gain. This all right, is, I've, got a, I've got to ask you a question here, Jim. When was the last time you bought something on the value prop of saving money? Yeah, I don't do it anymore. What was the last time you bought something on the value prop of saving time? Mm, regularly. I, I, okay. I still do that because, uh, you know, I, I've got a four-year-old little boy. And so any time that I can spend with him is for the better. So I will buy things that allow me to have more available time for me. All right. Fair enough. Excellent. The point I want to make here is that it's actually saving is still the the worst possible value prop. I'm not saying Agreed. it's not effective. No, no, we're, we're totally agree. I agree with that one wholeheartedly. There's just way better value props. And if you want to sell more, you got to sell higher value. And that higher value is the levels up on Maslow's hierarchy. And the, and the reality is most of the people listening to this podcast don't sell on level one and two of Maslow. You're right. They sell on three, four, and five, in which case, if we're teaching them pain-based selling, we're doing them a disservice. 
that's where I'm trying to go with this. Yeah, I, I would love to, uh, you know, just continue this conversation. I think uh, you, we talked, we were talking pre-show and we said there might have to be a, a volume two or an episode two. I think that's <laughs> definitely going to be the case um, with this because I don't disagree. One of my favorite questions, Mark, is, you know, after I've, de- I'm, I'm, I do develop pain. So after I've developed a little pain, I might say to you, hey, Mark, let's fast forward 12 months from now. And let's pretend that everything that we, we're talking about today is in place and things are going incredibly well in your organization. Describe that world to me. What, what does Indeed. that mean? In fact, in fact, you probably read that out of my guerrilla negotiating book that I published in 1994. And yes, it's called Creating History. Okay. And, and it's a very effective way you know, of, of helping people imagine what it would be like to work with you. Well, and, so I'm I'm not putting myself in that mix yet. I just literally want them to describe what that world would look like at first. Indeed. But then I go to the opposite path and I said, okay, now mm-hmm. that's amazing. And I get to jot down all those notes and now I can apply my services and skills and products, et cetera, to that to show them how I could help them achieve those. But then I love asking the opposite question. So now, Mark, tell me what happens if that doesn't happen, if those aren't actualized. And now they're going to start talking about the pain statements, if you will. So again, it's not about savings, but it's the pain statements, the opposite of that. And they're more, in my opinion, they are more inclined to move away from those for those things not to happen than they are that actual big vision. But again, I'm loving this debate. So what are your, what are your thoughts there? Right on. I love the debate too. And, and, and let me, let me point out to you, I'm not telling you that pain-based sales methodologies are ineffective. They are at the right level for the right product. It's not a universal tool. That's the point I really want to make. And the reality is we have to show people contrast. And the the history creation strategy works extremely well. I recommend it wherever possible. And I add another layer to that I'd like to offer to you. And that is to ask, you know, let's fast forward a year from date. Let's let's flip open our calendar. Actually have people flip open their calendar and put their finger on that date. What did we do to create the success that you're looking for? What happened? What were the steps that we took? How did that happen? And I find that to be extremely powerful to do that. So that creating the contrast between the vision of what's possible and then the vision of what if we don't take action? Yeah, that's and that that's contrast. It right there. That contrast is what creates the motivation to move forward. So don't do one without the other. <laughs> yep. No, I, again, it's Mark, the I, blend that makes this work. That's totally right. That's totally right. So I, I think, um, we, we kind of talked around each other a little bit and then we had a little bit of, of head on conflict, which I believe is Woo-hoo! extremely good. Right. Um, I, I tell everybody just in the sales process, you have, you're not even selling until you hear no once. If all you're doing is hearing, yes, you are just screwed because, uh, too many, uh, amateur salespeople, they just think if we can get, get these micro commitments of yes, 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 yes. You get to the end. Of course, they're going to say yes again, but that, it, what ends up happening is that becomes your first no is at the end. And now you're shocked that they didn't buy. Here's an important understanding about half of the people you sell to are mismatchers. The other half are, are matchers as, as most salespeople are matchers. A matcher is somebody that looks for commonality and common ground. And so what we do is talk about the things we agree about, and we agree not to talk about the things we disagree about. We agree to disagree. Yet half of the people you're calling on are mismatchers. And their belief is, why should we talk about something we agree about? We already agree. Let's talk about the things we don't agree about. So I can, I can understand your viewpoint. You can understand my viewpoint. And if there's enough value versus what I have to tolerate to do business with you, then we're going to do that. And the way a mismatcher learns is through debate. 
So let me give you a quick list of mismatchers. Law enforcement officers are mismatchers. Pilots of airplanes are mismatchers. Doctors are mismatchers. Engineers, CPAs. Anybody who has to do quality assurance is a mismatcher. And the reason why is they're looking for the errors. And to find errors, you have to be a mismatcher. So salespeople, when you, when somebody moves into debate, don't feel like you're being rebuffed because quite frankly, if they didn't care, they wouldn't bring it up. It seems to me, Mark, most salespeople, they know what to do, right? A lot of the stuff that we're talking about today, they know what to do, but many of them, they don't know how they should actually accomplish that. What advice do you have for, for us to start to understand that how? I think the first thing to do is look at your approach to sales and think about the place where you feel that little twist in your gut as you step into a sales situation. It could be picking up the phone at the first time of the day or how do you leave a voicemail message that gets returned? Or how do you start the conversation with a new prospect? For a lot of salespeople, that creates this little in their gut where they're not really sure how it's going to go. Well, that's the place where you need to do some serious work to figure out where you're out of alignment with your gut. Authenticity is what generates trust. And trust is critical to your success as a sales professional. If you want to have a long-term relationship with customers, they must trust you. In fact, they can't buy from you unless they trust you. And so that little aren't that you're feeling is that inauthenticity that you've got to throw out the old methodology and invent a new methodology that's going to work for you. So let's take an example. For a lot of people, the, uh, the question is along the lines of how do I sell myself or I'm going to use a little different. Then I want to get to the sell yourself. A lot of people ask me, Mark, how can I beat my competition? Great question. You're asking the wrong question, though. The question isn't how to beat your competition. The question is how can you help your customers beat their competition? Just, just completely repositioning it that way. Yep. And when you do that, you win every time. And so, you, you know, if you, what if you started the conversation with, you know, tell me about your customers. Tell me about the people you do business with. Tell me about how you acquire customers. What, and when your customers buy from you, why, why do they do that? What, what makes you, you know, what's your secret sauce? What's your magic that causes customers to do business with you? And, and when they don't do business with you, what is it that, uh, what is it that keeps them away? Well, you know, I got a couple ideas that might be able to help you swing a few percentage points of those people that aren't buying from me to buying from me. Would you like to have a conversation about that? Whoa. See, now we're in complete alignment, right? And I just ask permission to sell. And most of us take, take <laughs> the opportunity to sell, but then what happens is we throw up this uh, resistance net. And most people, their, their sales technology creates resistance, and we can't sell into resistance. And the reason why is resistance moves people down Maslow's hierarchy of need to level two. And so the way they, they get safe is they lie to us. <laughs> you, you, well, uh, all, all buyers are liars. I completely agree with that. I think that's another article that I've read of yours, but you had to Indeed. bring it back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, didn't you? Right. You wanted to get that last uh, word in and beat me in this argument, didn't you, Mark? No, that's not it at all, I'm Jim. Just, I want no, to, I'm I, totally I, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if beating you is, is the, is the objective of this, of this, uh, of this particular conversation, I don't know if I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're a you're an ex pro wrestler, and I think you could probably take <laughs> me apart limb by limb. Oh goodness! So I don't think I don't think we're going to take on that particular battle. 
now I'm going to regret sharing my video with you, but, but let's go back to that because you're <laughs> right, right? As we bring that in, we're going to get those buyers lying to us. And, and again, it is an article that you've wrote out. I'll link to in the show notes, but all buyers are liars. What, what, it, it's, a, it's true. And they have to do that because it's a defense mechanism to us. They don't want to create the controversy that a lot of salespeople are forcing them to create. But how do we, how do we get around that? First of all, I want to get back to Maslow's and I want to answer that question. The reason why Maslow's is so important is because if your buyer is on level one or two, you cannot sell to them things that are a level three, four, or five. And so one of the things you have to do, in fact, a classic example of that when we're selling B2B is, you know, we make sure people are comfortable. We might bring them donuts and coffee. We might, we might take them out to a meal so they're not hungry or hangry as the case may be. We've got to make sure that our buyers are high enough up the hierarchy for us to even sell things to them. In fact, it's impossible for me to self sell self-actualization um, technology to people that don't have self-esteem. And so it's important for you to understand where your buyer is before you make an attempt to sell them at something. They must be at or above the level of what you are, of what you're selling for it to, for it to work. Well, that's the reason why Maslow's hierarchy is so important to the world of sales. And that's the reason why I brought it back to that. Now, the question is buyers and liars, how do we keep them from lying to us? Don't ask them to lie to you. Don't ask manipulative questions. Uh, Mr. Smith, would you like to save money? Oh, that's the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my life. Of course I want to save money. Uh, Mr. Smith, if I could show you how to save a million dollars at your business, would you be interested? Are you telling me I'm a moron for not finding a million dollars in my business? It's my business. What makes you think, young whippersnapper, that you can find a million dollars in my business that I haven't found yet? Don't ask questions that insult them. I'm just sitting here shaking my head because, I mean, you're you're absolutely right on that. I've, and I hear it way too often. But I, I want to get to that. I want to address that. And this goes back to the uh, most of people know what to do, but they don't know how to do it. Is it is that conversation you just had, is that business acumen? Is that sales training? What is the reason that people are doing that? So the answer is yes to all those things. Unfortunately, what most people call sales training is actually product training. And the product, the product training is about what you talk about. Sales training is about how you talk about it. It's the context that you put in. It's the questions that you ask to understand a person's motivation. Uh, let's talk about this for just a moment. When it comes to our success as sales professionals, 50% of our success is the customer motivation. Do they want to buy what we are selling? I don't care how good we are, how cheap we are. If they don't want to buy it, if it's not within their motivational set, if it's not part of their identity, they're going to say no. And you can illustrate that by, I can go in, into any room and I can offer people a, a, a stick of free gum. And some people will take me up on it. Others won't. You know, some people are motivated to chew gum. Some people aren't. I don't care how good you are. Those that aren't motivated to chew gum aren't going to take it if it's free. So half our success is their motivation. 40% is the relationship that we create. Do they trust us? Do they believe us? Do they think that we are acting in their best interest or are we just trying to sell them something? And I don't care how motivated they are to buy. If they don't trust you, they can't buy from you. And then 10% of our success is the product, which surprises a lot of people. Yet the reality is there's a lot of ways to get the job done, including doing nothing. And set, yet most salespeople put all their attention on the 10% product. The reality is the heart of selling is the 90%. When I understand a customer's motivation and they trust me, I can sell them anything that will accomplish the outcome that they have in mind. And most of us have. We've sold competitive products successfully. The reality is that the competitive differentiation is you, the salesperson. It's not the product. 
dig this, dude. Every objection you've ever had to overcome was created by you. <laughs> by saying something that your prospect found objectionable. Uh, there's a clinical term for this. Stupid. You're making me think about some of the deals that I've lost recently and this notion that every objection that I've heard in those deals are ones that I created because um, I'm totally of the notion that all objections were known prior to me even speaking, but now you're telling me that I am the one that brought them out to begin with. So I'm going to have to do some uh, uh, some soul searching here this evening, Mark. This is the way we've been taught forever. And it only comes from my experience selling high ticket, expensive, complex, multi-decider methodologies that has caused me to, to, uh, to challenge how I was taught how to sell. Now there was, there's, as Zig Ziglar pointed out, there's four, five fundamental reasons why people won't buy. No need. That's not an objection. They just don't need it. No hurry. Uh, that's not an objection. There's just not a priority. No want. It's not a matter of an objection. It's just, not, I don't, I don't want that. I, I don't want a piece of gum. No money. I can't help that. If they don't have the money, I can't help them or no trust. And out of Zig's list of five, there's only one thing I can control and that's the trust component. But those, but if you say they don't have money, they don't want it, they don't need it, they don't, there's no hurry, those aren't objections. Those are all about objective and priority over which I have no control. So speaking of no time and no priorities and these being things that you can't necessarily control, you wrote an incredible article uh, labeled No Deadline, No Deal. So I'm going to ask you the question, how do you kind of manufacture that urgency, manufacture that prioritization when there isn't a compelling event uh, on the horizon? You might have trust, but you don't have any of those other things. How do you manufacture that urgency? There's two fundamental deadlines. No deadline, no deal is fundamental to sale. All deals are done because of some deadline. There's two deadlines. There's an internal deadline. That's one the customer has. And there's an external deadline. That's one that we place on the customer. So an internal deadline is always the best to sell to. And that internal deadline might be first day of school. <laughs> you know, we need to replace our air conditioner or our heater before the first day of school because I don't want the kids getting up in the morning and being cold and cranky when we scoot them off. There's always going to be some sort of, of deadline that needs to be involved. And part of our job as a sales professional is to help uncover those deadlines. And we have to do so carefully. And oftentimes we ask the deadline, when do you need to make a decision? Bad question. Yeah. Terrible question. Bad, 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 bad question. Instead, we have to ask other questions that are around that um, to help a customer understand the timing. Now in the world of IT, a lot of times I'll say, well, you know, when do you need to have this operational? Uh, well, the boss says we need to have this going first of February. Okay, great. So how much training do your people need before they'll, they'll be comfortable and confident and make the transformation and you're not going to take a hit in productivity? Well, we probably need about a month to do that. Yep. I think probably that's right because we can't make them stop what they're doing. They're going to have to fit that into their current schedule. All right. So how long is it going to take for us to transfer the data? Two weeks? Yeah. For the check. I think you're right. How long is it going to take to install this? Yeah, another couple of weeks. Okay, great. How long is it going to take facilities to pull in new power and, and put in some cooling to make this work? Uh, yeah, we should probably give them six weeks. Wow. Well, what that means is we need to make a decision next week for us to have this up and running by the 1st of January or February. You see how that worked? 
Totally did. I think what you're laying out is what I call the critical path. And and that critical path has to include uh, something well beyond the signature event, which is what most sellers, all that's all they care about is that signature event. Your, your uh, critical path must extend well into the buyer's realm to make them care about it. But let me ask you this, Mark, and I want to understand. So you've talked about, and well, not only talked about, you've sold disruptive products, disruptive technologies, specifically into IT for a long time. You said that your tribe... When selling these disruptive products, sometimes it is a nice to have, definitely not a need to have. They want to have it, but they don't need it. So we can't talk about when do they want this in place. How are you going to create that that deadline uh, for uh, them with a disruptive product that is just a something brand new to change their way of thinking? The more we can align with their motivation, the faster we can get there. And so we have to ask questions that circle around the benefit or the alignment, better phrase, the alignment to their motivation. The most powerful and most persuasive value proposition that we can deliver is prestige. People will pay more for prestige than anything else. So for a lot of us, it's a matter of helping figure out what creates prestige in the mind of the customer and then figuring out some sort of event that's coming up where they can display their prestige. So for, so it, it's about exploration. So let's, let's say for example, that I'm selling a new luxury car to somebody and I go, you know, what, you know, what kind of cool things you got coming up? You got some weddings, you got some anniversaries, you got some, uh, uh, fa- a family reunion. Do you have a high school reunion? Do you have a college reunion? Do you have some, wow. Can you imagine pulling up in this beautiful car and showing your friends and family that you're doing all right? Can you imagine what that would be? So now we have them imagining against a deadline of their own. The best deadlines are going to be internal deadlines. Sometimes we have to point them out. The worst deadlines are the ones that we manufacture. And the reason why is we usually have to give up margin to make that happen. Tell you what, before the end of the month, and I'll give you two for one. Yeah, that's the worst thing in the world there. Right. But that's the attempt. Now, there are times when we can use that genuine deadline, but it has to be genuine because if your customer discovers that you have manufactured a deadline, they won't trust you. You're done. They're going to tell the world about it on social media. Forget it. Well, and, and, even if, that. and even if they're not done, all you've done is introduce a new price to them because there's not an actual deadline to that discount. You're doing it simply to get the deal done. And so they know this, and especially people who now have bought technology before, they're used to salespeople coming at the end of the month, end of the quarter, and especially at the end of the year, trying to get those last deals done. So you've we've trained them to expect that discount. And it's really hard to hold margin and, and hold our price if, you know, if we're just going to immediately uh, get to the point of discounting. Well, the thing I want you to I want you to understand as a sales professional, if you offer a discount, you're taking money out of your wallet. That's right. Don't do that. There's better ways to get deals. I don't know about you, but I'd rather do half the number of deals at twice the margin. Mm-hmm. It's just way easier. Mark, I've got to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to my sponsors. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. Speaking of money. So you don't go away and sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Pipedrive is the sales CRM built by salespeople for salespeople. I love it because it allows me to visualize my pipeline, highlighting opportunities and potential problems, ensuring I don't drop the important activities and conversations needed. And the managers I work with love it because it's simple and they don't have to nag their team to actually use it. But sales sooners, don't just take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself for free for 30 days. 
at salesooners.com slash pipe drive. We're back and it's time for the money round. Mark, are you ready for the money round? Woohoo! <laughs> Here we go. What's the one thing that's contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Learning from my screw ups. Every one of those scars and bruises has given me insight, either turning me from a, being a jerk to, to being a, somebody who's lovable and loving, or caused me to stop and say, why isn't this working? And I think if we don't question where we are failing, we, will, we, are, dis, we are doomed to continue to fail. If you were to start over today in sales, Mark, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? I would learn six questions. And this, that's, that, that, these are it. What are you considering or what have you bought in the past? What did you like best about it? What else, what else, what else, what else until they say that's it? Well, what do you like least about it? What else, what else, what else, what else until they say that's it? If you could have things any way you wanted, what would you change? What else, what else, what else until they say that's it? If you could do that, what would it mean to you and your team? What else, what else, what else until they say that's it? Then what would cause you to change your mind? Those six questions means if I had had those when I started, I would be jet rich. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose. Actually, I have a third. I love when my customer wins. And the reason why is when that happens, I don't lose and I win. Mark, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Oh, I love that. Tom Sawyer. Uh, is my favorite book. And the reason why is if you read it, it's about sales. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Mark's suggestion of Tom Sawyer for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. And as you heard Mark say, Tom Sawyer is a sales book. Mark, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? to improve my guitar playing. So I have lined up lessons with a guy who has 10 albums out of Nashville. He's going to teach me guitar and a guy who plays almost every week, every day of the week out of Canada. And so I can't wait to amp up my licks from people who do it for a living. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Stop the grind. It's time for you to up-level your sales skills. Listen to this episode one more time. Focus on the 10, 40, 50. Look at the 50% motivation, 10, 40% relationship, and you will sell a hell of a lot of 10% product. I'm going to get you out here on this one, Mark. How could someone find you or connect with you after the show if they wanted to? All right, two ways. Number one, let's link in. Mark's on LinkedIn.com. We'll take you straight to my LinkedIn profile. That's the first thing where you can enjoy the articles and the posts that I have on a regular basis. It's how Jim and I found each other. The second way is to keep an eye out for my forthcoming book called Selling Disruption, where I lay out a lot of the things we've talked about today, and I expect for that to be out in the first of 2018. Can't wait to get a copy into your hands, Jim, and uh, we'll figure out how way to get a copy into the hands of your listeners. Probably complimentary. I'm going to give away a lot of copies of that book. Well, free always sounds good. Mark, I knew this was going to be good, but it was great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for being excellent, but not perfect. 
If you want to get in touch with Mark, the easiest way of doing so is by going to marksonlinkedin.com, which by the way, having a vanity URL like that is pretty cool. I may steal that. You should also keep an eye out for his forthcoming book, Selling Disruption. All right. I took so many notes from this conversation that I actually had to call Mark again afterwards just to digest some of the topics. With that, let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, sales is change management. This is especially true when we're selling disruptive products, but it's our job as salespeople to change how our prospects view the world and show them how we can help them achieve their desires. Anything else Mark says is narcissistic or even psychopathic. Number two, saving money and saving time are the two worst value props. Both concepts are limited value propositions. The limiting factor of saving money is taking what a prospect is currently spending and lowering it down to zero. Whatever the number is, you can't go any further. With time, there's no such thing as 100% efficiency. So this proposition is also limited to a finite ending. And number three, Maslow drives all deals. When you're selling at the top of an organization, executives are more vision-driven than they are pain-driven. While I don't disagree with that, I did challenge the notion that pain-based selling is counterproductive in those situations. Mark says once a person has moved past the first few rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they are focused on inventing a future that does not yet exist using methodologies that have not yet been invented, and they will partner with companies that will help them get to that vision. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week where I'll head across the pond to Amsterdam for a conversation with Richard Viss, who leads sales enablement for Staple Solutions Europe. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. Why isn't phonetic spelled the way it sounds?